Welcome to Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I'm Connie Teeson. Imagine being a recent grad or student in a media program right now as thousands of reporters, editors, and broadcasters are being laid off and freelance budgets have dried up. That's the situation the group of young journalists behind new long-form journalism site The Pigeon find themselves in. Coming together in what managing editor Taegwin Hughes says was the most Gen Z way possible on social media, she used her Serb check as a startup fund to get the site going, which celebrated its one-month anniversary this past week. On this episode of the podcast, we talked to Hughes and editorial team member Bailey Morell on creating their own opportunity while building a platform for underrepresented voices. My name is Bailey Morell. I use they, them pronouns. I am currently living on unceded Lekwungen and Wasainich territories. So what would be the Fernwood neighborhood in Victoria? I started doing journalism when I was 18. I didn't really do any student reporting before that, but I was always a writer. And so I went to the University of King's College. I'm currently a student there still. But uh, yeah, so I started my first journalism job was as the LGBTQ collective coordinator for CKDU. Uh, really lucky to have that on background and currently along with being on the editorial board of the pigeon i am a reporter for indigenous which is a company partnered with the discourse to do indigenous based news um, in the okanagan and on vancouver island my name is tegwin hughes i use she her pronouns i am currently based in ottawa although i will be moving to vancouver island in september i got my start in journalism a little by accident I had worked for my high school paper. I'd done some writing when I was younger, but while at Queen's University, I was looking for something to do on campus and the Queen's Journal was hiring. I took my chance as a copy editor and it turned out I was really, really good at grammar. And then I worked as the assistant lifestyle editor the next year. So I really dove into campus paper life for a couple of years. I just graduated from Queens with my bachelor's of history and tried my hand at freelancing for a couple of months. But with COVID-19, freelance budgets are shot. Nobody is really hiring a new graduate, especially one who doesn't have that direct journalism school background. Queens doesn't have a journalism school. So although Queens Journal is the unofficial quote unquote journalism school of Queens, it's not always recognized as that. And that's kind of how I stumbled into The Pigeon as a project. But my journalism background essentially is just campus reporting. And that's served me surprisingly well so far. So I want to talk more about what it's like to be a young journalist just starting out, not just in what's a challenging time for journalism, but also during a pandemic when thousands of reporters and editors and other media talent are being laid off. I think it's been a kind of a thing where it's not a surprise for me how daunting it is, because it is like definitely scary. But I I think I wasn't fully unfazed, but it just seems kind of par for the course at the moment. I remember my first journalism class, um, actually my prof 
brought up like fake news and all that kind of stuff and I think it has been daunting for the last couple years of like people in journalism school I can speak to that at least and I think it's just daunting for freelancers in general um, and that's how most of us will get our start or, or are trying to get our start because it's really difficult to find like actual jobs that will give you healthcare benefits it's a difficult start and I definitely think it is not for everybody but I also think there is a lot of gatekeeping around that and that's a really big problem I think a lot of people have difficulty getting the support they need in order to figure out how to do these jobs properly and with confidence and feeling safe and so I think that's kind of the biggest difficulty that I've highlighted but I think you kind of just start pushing through it because you like telling stories and you like telling other people's stories and helping them tell their stories. And so, you know, it sounds a bit cheesy, but I think that's the real focus. And I think there's a lot of really passionate people that are kind of sticking it out in that way. But I absolutely understand the impulse to want to quit and refocus. And honestly, without, you know, places like the Pigeon and Indigenous taking a chance on me, I probably would have started to do something else myself seeing all of the layoffs that are happening in the fields where I have experienced right now has been so disheartening. Most recently, the lifestyle layoffs at Global News. That was so sad to hear because lifestyle is where interpersonal stories thrive. And that, at least at the Queen's Journal, it was it was our most popular section. We got the most clicks and, and that's you know, neither here nor there, but I, I was so used to having my section and my work be valued. And then to see professional lifestyle journalists, as well as copy editors, be deemed non-essential to a paper's survival, that was so saddening, um, especially because that's, in lifestyle, that's where the highest proportion of LGBT reporters and reporters of color are based. Um, and that's where their stories are told the most. So obviously that was disheartening, seeing the reprioritization of news in a direction that doesn't match my own values. But then being able to work on the pigeon, like Bailey said, it, it, it has kept that flame alive of knowing that there are journalists out there who have these passions. There's just not enough venues for their words right now. Um, no one is hiring. People want those kind of stories right now because of the dialogues that are happening. But they don't want to hire people who are telling those stories. They just want their one-off, you know, personal trauma feature and then throwing them to the side in the favor of funding news, which is news is amazing. Um, it's just not where my passions lie. So seeing that happening right now, definitely disheartening. How did you all come together as a team and essentially decide that you needed to create your own opportunity? I mean, it happened in the most Gen Z way possible. It was a Facebook Messenger group chat um, that our colleague Mackenzie Casalino had made. They put it together out of Twitter and Facebook friends. They had four young Canadian journalists who were feeling a little lost, a little lonely with COVID-19. And through that, we had expressed this frustration with the hiring, the lack of hiring, the lack of freelance budget, the lack of need for our kind of voices. Um, and so a few of us were just talking about what Canadian media needed at the moment. And we really can't put our finger on who said it first. But someone said, well, if only we could start our own publication. 
And then it immediately turned to, well, why not? We have all this free time right now with COVID-19. It's the one benefit. We're all stuck at home. Many of us are unemployed. Uh, we have so much time on our hands. No one is taking our writing. If we're going to be earning no money, we might as well be working on a project we're passionate about at the same time. And so that was kind of my experience coming into the pigeon. It was really within a couple of days, we had our founding team formed. We had just a Facebook group chat, um, but from then we grew so quickly. You mentioned that a lot of, you know, mainstream publications are cutting their lifestyle departments. And, and I want to talk about, you know, how much of the effort is about creating new media that you don't see in the largely homogenized Canadian media landscape? And also, do you want to talk about the pigeon ethos and prioritizing marginalized voices? I think the loss of lifestyle journalism, as Edwin was saying, is a place where a lot of people who are maybe underrepresented in other forms of journalism find space. And I think it speaks to, like, it's, it's, it's not only disheartening, it just really speaks to whose stories are being prioritized. It seems as though, you know, for me as an LGBTQ journalist, as somebody with Indigenous ancestry, as a femme presenting person, so many of my stories are actively politicized just because of, like, what categories I belong to. Mm-hmm. So I often felt like I didn't have a space in traditional journalism media. I was too biased just because of who I am. Like I can talk about the stories that are important to my community, but that'll be considered advocacy journalism. Whereas somebody who is maybe cisgender, white, straight, you know, belongs into these majority demographics, um, their community stories are seen as hard news in a different way. Um, and so I don't think that's always a great thing obviously because what we see is like biased and what we see as non-biased is really swayed by you know societal outlooks and not actually what is biased and non-biased because we're all biased in our own ways and I think the pigeons ethos really goes into allowing folks from other communities talk about what is important to them and what is pertinent in a way that is not just a quick blip and not just a one-off. I think the beauty of slow journalism, and and that's what we're trying to practice, we do long form. So we're not publishing press releases. We're not publishing breaking news. Um, It might influence our journalism, what's happening in Canada right now. Um, But we aren't rushing our stories. And I think the beauty of that is that it allows our contributors to bring us the topics that are really important to them, whether that is something that relates to them, something they've heard about in their community. It allows them to bring that to us and show it to us and say, I, this is what I'm passionate about. Will you help me tell my story? And because we have that interpersonal relationship, it is less about, we need a story about X this week. Let's find someone to write that. It's this person wants to speak about this. How can we give them that platform? So the beauty of slow journalism is that we aren't pushing any topics, but we're not ignoring ones either. Obviously, we take into account what's important to Canadians right now. And I think you can tell from our stories that we're speaking to dialogues that are happening across the country recently. But if we don't have a person who's passionate about a story, we're not going to write it because we aren't pressed by the need to get clicks 
or the need to put out X amount of stories every day, every story that comes out on the pigeon was born out of a passion for that story. And I think that that is really helpful when it comes to, like Bailey was saying, you know, not tokenizing our authors because it comes from them. I've never had a contributor come forward and I've said, I want you to write this. It is always about what they want to write. And I think that's something that's, you know, very unfamiliar in today's media because freelancers, you know, blindly pitching is something that's dying out a lot with the lack of funding right now. That's a good segue into my next question about your operational model, which relies on donor funding right now. How do you see the pigeon continuing to move forward? Do you have any goals set for yourself? And I know you also have a podcast in the works. I love talking about money. So um, I will (laughs) gladly take this on. And I think Bailey can talk whole podcast much better than I can. Our model, we, we were inspired by a lot of indie community journalism in Canada but also from the values that we hold, which is that it is inaccessible to have a paywall on your site. It is unfortunately necessary for a lot of Canadian media outlets right now. You know, we are young. Many of us cannot afford to pay for a media outlet paywall. And so to expect that of our peers and our demographic was out of the question. So no paywall. Okay, what's the next option? Advertising, sure. but Advertising not only makes the site aesthetically unpleasing, but doesn't necessarily align with our values of being completely independent. We have very minimal advertising on our site right now through WordPress. I think it's made us sense so far. Um, uh, it's something we're testing, but it's not something we're prioritizing or, you know, holding out on. So the other options were fundraising and merchandise. We've just launched our Redbubble yesterday. Um, and that is all designs from our visual contributors. Our art director, Amelia Rankin, did an incredible job of putting it together. It's not going to be our main source of fundraising. It was really more a way so that we could get t-shirts with our logo on it, to be completely honest. Um, it was a little selfish. It's not going to make us enough money to survive, but that's another thing we've gone towards. But hopefully our main source of revenue will be through Patreon which is the crowdsourced fundraising site we've chosen to go with because of the ability to have tiers and to have transparency about the amount of money we've earned. Many newspaper sites choose to go with a blind donation straight through PayPal or another means that gives a bit more freedom to the consumer but has very little transparency. Um, And we wanted to prioritize showing how much money we earn monthly and where that money is going. So you can go onto Patreon at any given time and see how much has been pledged to us. Um, I think it's 260 something a month at the moment, which for us is monumental, but is not much. <laughs> it means that we can pay for our domain this year, which was really exciting because um, I had paid for that out of pocket. I knew I'd get it back eventually. I just didn't know when. And so the other facet of that that's really important to us is that is the tiers. So there are different levels of fundraising that our supporters can sign up for. Um, both financially, we have a tier as low as $3 a month. We have one as high as $100 a month, just in case, you never know. Um, but we also have tiers with specific allocation of those funds. We have a operations fund, which is kind of my allowance. That is for Zoom premium, 
expenses, um, just the little things, the boring things. But then we also have our marginalized contributor fund, which will not be all of the money that is allocated towards contributors when we are able to pay them, but ensures that our donors know that a certain amount of money will always be reserved exclusively for marginalized contributors. While we're currently unable to pay our contributors, which we acknowledge is completely inequitable and it's an ongoing issue in, in media when it comes to freelancing. When we are able to pay them, we will prioritize first and foremost paying marginalized contributors because that acknowledges the extra steps that marginalized freelancers have to go through to get their stories told. So that was a long spiel, but that's a fundraising model. And it's worked really well for us so far. I think people appreciate the transparency. People appreciate being able to see what they're giving to and having that choice. It's almost like they're a mini investor in us and it, and it shows what our readers care about. Um, I was surprised that my operations fund got donations from people, but I'm assuming it's other editors who understand the little things add up. And so that's been, it's been really an interesting experience, but that is hopefully where our model will continue to go. I think as of today, yeah, today's our one month launch anniversary. We've been launched for a single month. And so the growth that we've had is beyond our expectations, but we hope to grow more. And, you know, in the future, our readers might choose to pledge more, our money may grow, all the while being transparent. And then, fingers crossed, we can pay people because that is our goal, is to be a media publication that is a viable option for young folks who are just starting out to get that first paycheck. You know, we can give that first byline now, but not be paying folks. Um, we're not giving them the real freelance experience just yet. We're giving them most of it. And so that's my next big goal is to actually be able to pay people. Do you want to talk about the podcast, Bailey? Yeah, so we do have a couple podcasts in the works. So it's more than one, which is ambitious. <laughs> but the first one that is coming out is actually going to be co-hosted by myself and one of our other contributors. And that'll be coming, our first episode will be coming out later this month. And we're hoping to do as a group of podcasts um, every two weeks, moving into the rest of the year. Our first podcast coming out is going to be called Coastal Calling, and it's myself who's over here in Victoria and Erin who's in New Brunswick, and we're hoping to contextualize some nationwide stories with a little bit more of a local angle um, with what's going on, you know, what am I experiencing in British Columbia, um, and what is Erin experiencing in New Brunswick and the rest of the Maritimes, and so um, yeah, we're really excited to introduce that. So what's been the response overall from from both the young journalists that have been part of this venture and your readers. I know there's a mentorship aspect to this. And I'm wondering, you know, in reference to startup life, there are highs and lows as part of that as its own thing, not to mention mentoring a bunch of new journalists. Are there times where, where this has all been really overwhelming? As a managing editor, I, I have quite a hand in our editorial process. We've been working with a lot of contributors in the last couple of weeks, which is so exciting. We have so many new voices coming in. And, you know, while the process of editing takes a lot more time than you would typically see um, at a publication, even another digital publication, it, it's well worth it um, to have that finished product. Yes, a lot of our contributors have 
Some have only written, you know, short form news pieces for a campus paper, a local paper. Some have never written for a newspaper at all. I don't think any of our contributors so far have much experience in long form. Not many young people do because they're not given the chance to publish a long form piece in an established publication because it's a risk. The risk to take on someone brand new for such a hefty piece. So that comes with extra work. Sometimes it is a little overwhelming, but it's taught us so much. I don't think if we had these inexperienced contributors, I would know as much about long form after one month of editing as I do now. I know the ins and outs of a future piece now because I've had to explain it to a lot of folks. So not only are they learning what writing and being edited for a future piece is like, because it's a lot. Um, it's very overwhelming, I think, for a contributor to get back that Word document covered in edits because a feature takes a lot, you know? It, it takes a lot of clarification when you're writing over 2,000 words topic. And so I think they are overwhelmed, but then we get to walk them through that process and they're with a peer. I can't imagine how frightening it must be to get your feature edited by, I hate to say it, a grown up, but you know what I mean, an established <laughs> journalist, an adult. Um, someone who's not in your demographic, we have that comfort level that we're able to talk them through, you know, this is why we do the edit. This is why you have to make this change. And they wouldn't get that in another publication. So while it can be overwhelming for us and it's a lot of work, it's definitely worth it. And, you know, we, it's what we signed up to do. So we're not beating ourselves up over it. And then the final products we've put out have been you know, not to toot my own horn, just as polished, I would say, as any other publication. Mm. We've put out some really important work. Just today, we have an article by a contributor named Omar based in Calgary come out about the systemic racism in the city and the response to the Black Lives Matter movement that was heard recently. And it's such a touching piece. And to be able to work with Omar on that, and I'm just honored that he thought of our publication because it is such an important story that he's trusting with us. So... It is a lot of work, but it's worth it. It's worth it for the final product. It's worth it to see the authors have their first byline, their first long-form byline, and know that, you know, everyone has learned from the process. So is Gen Z going to save Canadian journalism? I don't think Canadian journalism needs to be saved. I think it needs to be changed. And I think, you know, as we've seen, like, I talk about this all the time, just even in group meetings about what is necessary for uh, things to change and for things to become um, stable and maybe more representational, more comfortable, more ethical. And I think a big part of that is going to come with making sure that we prioritize voices that weren't prioritized beforehand. Because as you see with a lot of legacy news corporations or even just in the journalism like circle or like the journalism world, if you're on journalism Twitter, you'll know certain people's names. The thing about that is it's the same people or the same group of people that are, has been writing stories and publishing stories for a very long time. And I think that's where independent media is really important. And I think that's where local media is really important. We see so much of that going away and we see so much of that being deprioritized when in reality that's where so much impact comes from. You know, the most impactful stories I've ever witnessed being told are at the city council level sometimes and what happens in people's communities. And so I think Gen Z has the opportunity to take it in a different direction and change things to fit the way our world affects us and to 
have that reciprocate like we affect the world the world affects us if that makes sense and so maybe we won't save Canadian media as it is today but we can change it into something that serves our communities better. Is there a thought you want to close on Tegwin? You know I find it very interesting that folks have responded so positively to the pigeon because a lot of the things that we've done have been a no-brainer to us. Our fundraising model, our platform, it it just came naturally. We knew it was the right thing to do. And then to have so many folks ask us, why why did you choose this? Um, It's been very interesting because it really wasn't a process. We all, you know, we all agreed marginalized voices need to be prioritized. You know, transparency needs to be a priority when it comes to fundraising. All of these things took very little thought on our part. And I think the fact that more established journalists are happily surprised, but surprised to see the way we're doing things, really, really speaks to what the new generation of journalists in Canada have gone through and what they hope to see. Because all the young journalists I've spoken to have said, I, you know, I would have done it the same way. I'm so happy to see this happening. I'd love to get involved. And I haven't heard any dissent from any Canadian journalists I've spoken to who are my age. And so, you know, we're happy to see our message pushed through, but we don't really need any praise for it either because we wouldn't have done it any other way, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think as we move forward, we're excited to meet more people who are willing to do it with us or people we can even support um, in doing their own thing. Um, I think the spirit of this is not competition or scooping other people or making sure we get our story out first, but to make sure that the story that we're telling is one that is valuable and truthful. Okay. Thank you both for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having having us. us. Our thanks to Tegwin Hughes and Bailey Morell. You can check out the Pigeon site at the-pigeon.ca. For Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, I'm Connie Thiessen. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. Looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.